Hello everybody, this is Jim Barton and I'm here with Reverend Abigail Conley and this is another episode of Bloody Mary Bible Brunch. So today we're continuing our series on sex in the Bible and the specific topic we're talking about here is um, sex within marriage as described in the Bible. And so, um, Abby, one of the things that we talked about in our um, our live brunch, which anyone should come to if they see it advertised, in our live brunch was um, we started out talking about some of the um, ideas about traditional marriage and whether the notion of traditional marriage is in the Bible. And we know that there's not one notion of traditional marriage is in the Bible, but the idea that um, um, leave it to beaver style marriage, man is in charge, has his wife and kids under control, that's in the Bible, right? That's in the Bible. It is, I think, in its infancy in the Bible um, because an Old Testament model assumes a man and many wives, not right. one wife. Um, and then by the pastoral letters, you start to get this sense that you're talking about one wife, not many wives, and you're starting to talk about, oh, the man should be in charge of this. Right. Now, pastoral letters are pretty late as far as Bible stuff goes. So let's be clear that this isn't what Jesus was talking about, but we've still inherited the full canon, and we don't get to just kick out whatever we don't like. And it wasn't what Paul was talking about. Right. Like, these are written, these are written some of them in the name of Paul, but it's definitely not Paul. Because, frankly, this idea of the guy should have one wife and should have his house in order is if he should be a bishop. Right. Which means we've already got a Christian church. Right. So let's now sort of walk away from that um, um, Ward and June Cleaver model and talk about what we do see in the Bible about sex and the Bible and sex and marriage. And really we have two big issues that are not great, and that's the Old Testament seeing um, marriage as a, a property, right? And then in the New Testament we see marriage, if you got to do it at all, it's only to fight lust, lust sexual right. urges, which are so terrible. So let's step back even one farther and say that what we can say from the Bible is that an intimate sexual relationship is assumed. Mm -hmm. During marriage. During marriage. Yeah. And one that may be procreative. I think the, the you know, we're wrestling with some teachings later that are, it has to be procreative. Right. And it's like, no, this is an assumption. Um, when God creates people and says, be fruitful and multiply, this is naturally assuming something procreative, but before that, a sexual intimate relationship. In the same way that even Paul's um, struggles with marriage assume that sex is happening. Right, because, um, right, so Paul, we're in the New Testament, now the concern is urges, right? And so Paul is basically saying, you shouldn't get married. Right, unless you have to. Unless you have to, and the only reason you have to is so that you can have sex in marriage, which is better than having sex out of marriage. Right. And, um, that's a bad teaching if you want your organization to stick around. What is it, the Shakers that like, went Shakers on away? It's the Shakers who were in Kentucky. Um, that was the fourth grade field trip was you go to Shaker Town. And so they had separate corridors for men and women, and they definitely didn't have sex. Um, Shaker was actually referring to the type of dancing they did during worship. Um, and the way that they kept going as long as they did is that this was around the time of the Civil War. And so they were able to adopt orphans and raise them in this religious tradition. And that tradition of adopting children continued for quite a while. Um, when I was in fourth grade, there were two shakers left in the world. 
Yeah. So I'm guessing there are none now because I'm a long way from fourth grade. But the Shakers, in their defense, had plenty of stuff in the New Testament to support what they were doing, right? So we talked about in um, in Corinthians, which is Paul, is an undisputed letter by Paul. He talks about um, this idea that first off, it's best if you just don't have sex, right? It's best if you just don't stay married. And why is that? Because you will burn. Well, sorry. You should get married because you will otherwise burn with lust. Right. Right. But the best is to not get married right. because Jesus is coming back right. any moment. And so he and the Shakers share that. Right. Both of them are convinced the return of Christ is imminent. So essentially, why would you bother with this thing? Right. When you were choosing... The only to reason to bother with it is to avoid, is to avoid sinfulness. Right. All right. So that's, that's what Paul said about sex and marriage. Um, what did Jesus say about sex and marriage? Jesus said very little about marriage. Yes. He did say... He talks about divorce. He talks about divorce. He does say there won't be marriage in heaven. He does tell men that, hey, if you're having so much trouble with lust, gouge your eyes out. Right. And that's interesting. So Jesus is very anti-lust, which is, again, that idea that, that, that idea of being afraid of sexual urges. Right. And... Um, um, uh, Miguel de la Torre, who we talked about positively last time, I mean, he tries to rehabilitate Jesus' uh, divorce teachings. And even that teaching about if it will be like the angels. And so we don't need to worry about in the afterlife about which of the brothers, you know, she's married to the, the woman who marries the seven brothers, right? right. Um, because we'll be like angels. Um, um, Miguel de la Torre says, well, that's because there won't be any property among the angels. And in the kingdom of God, we won't have any of those property relationships, which are the foundation. And so that really Jesus was preaching equality. Right. And also, according to De La Torre, Jesus is preaching equality when he talks about lust because he puts it on the burden on the man. Instead and, of on the woman. And not on the woman as a property. I like that. I don't know. I mean, I think that it's more than about equality. I think Jesus is really, frankly, Jesus is very hung up on um, sexuality as being a problem. Well, and I think that one of the things that is worth noting is like there are particular parts lust is a problem for Jesus the Essenes are at their kind of final hurrah during Jesus' life and that's an ascetic cult of Judaism that was pretty short lived about 300 years of a strong ascetic um, ascetic um, Judas, Jewish cult and then they kind of disappeared because again that problem of if you don't have sex and procreate you Right. don't have many people to carry forward your ideas. Um, it's worth noting, Jesus was not so opposed to these families' relationships. He did attend a wedding at Cana. And, yeah. I mean, that's one of those things, if you're Catholic, you say, yes, this is why marriage is a sacrament, because Jesus attended the wedding at Cana and instituted I mean, he attended the wedding, and he turns the water into wine, mm-hmm. only in John, not in the synoptics. Right. And he doesn't bless the wedding, does he? I guess he, he performs a miracle there. Right. And John says it's his first miracle. Right. Okay. So you get that. The so Jesus thing, is not as anti-marriage as Paul. Most likely. Including the fact that Jesus also had no problem with his disciples being married. True. So while Paul wasn't married, Peter definitely was. All three synoptics. Right. Talk about the mother-in-law. Talk about Peter's mother-in-law and Jesus healing his mother-in-law. Right. So, while there's a challenge to family structure and what it means to follow Jesus, anyone who loves mother, brother, or father more than me is not worthy to be called into my kingdom, it doesn't say wife or husband. 
That's true. And Jesus, while come and follow me, meant come and follow me, Peter clearly kept his family relationships. Right. When Jesus is even dying, he says, you know, hey, Peter, take care of my mom. Right, take care of my mom. So there are all these things that it's like, so we might have some struggles around sexuality. The family structures and those expectations are still in place, and Jesus does not totally say we're not doing this at all. Right. Um, he certainly doesn't do the pro-family values. He certainly doesn't seem to be about you need to go have a quiver full of followers of me. Right. Not a part of Jesus. That comes from Psalm 127. Yes. And where the, that's where that's where that movement, which is our modern movement for those that don't know, that says that you should have a bunch of children. Well, you shouldn't use birth control. You should get married. You should have a bunch of children. And so we can keep up with the typically population. Typically, follows homeschooling and homesteading. Right. That you raise all of the children together, and the Duggars are the most famous example right. of this. Um, which you know, it's really convenient to have that model of life of TLCs paying you a whole bunch of money. Yeah. To support all of your children. And they're not explicitly white supremacists, the Duggars. Okay, well that's good. I feel like much of the Quiverful stuff is pretty close to white supremacy. Yes. All right. That's a whole um, other conversation that, you know... Well, that's a feel, I feel like we shouldn't mention it without their core value, which is this, that. Right. But, all right, so let's now talk about um, the Old Testament. So the, the main thrust of the Old Testament is that the wife is property with which one has sex. Right. And with which one has sex because she is then a reception for seed to bear children. And, and so yeah. any infertility that comes is always her fault, never his fault, unless he does something stupid, like not have sex in the correct way. Right. So so we have things like, um, so we have some, a lot of laws that sort of circulate around that, right? One of the, one of the laws is about um, the Leverite mes- marriages that we talked about. Um, that's um, the idea that if... Um, a brother dies without giving his wife a son that his brother should marry her mm-hmm. so that she gets a son. Right. And that son is attributed the to the previous brother, the dead yes. brothers. Um, so that just like really sort of shows that, yes, there's this idea of sex and marriage, but it's entirely about procreation. And we have that famous story where Judah, who's one of the 12 brothers, is his child, his son... Um, doesn't impregnate his wife, so then Onan, the next son, comes in, has sex with her, but does not uh, finish in in the way that allows her to conceive. It's a really weird story, but as I said before, it all works out because. Um, and just in case anybody thinks this isn't polite conversation, remember this is all just the Bible. It's all the Bible. Like it's necessarily fine. Right. It's necessarily fine. That's right. This right. isn't a commentary. <laughs> Um, it all works out because she tricks him into thinking she's a prostitute and conceives a child with Judah. And then from there we get Jesus. Yeah. So, sorry. It's right. in the Bible. Um, there are... What, another thing that's interesting, though, when we do talk about this, is one of the first things in Exodus when it's talking about um, these issues of sexuality is it talks about slaves. And it talks about if you take a slave as a wife, you should treat her like a wife. Right. And then it says if you take um, a second wife... You should treat the first wife equally, and you should give her her fair share of meat, clothing, and then my translation said conjugal rights. Right. So that's interesting. My translation said marital rights. Marital rights. But roughly the same Whatever. It's interesting, though, that that is in the Old Testament now, and that is explicitly like the idea of sex and marriage is something that is um, owed 
it's a duty. The husband owes a duty to the wife of sex. Right. And in a system where I'm guessing often it was you get a younger wife the next time around. Um, right. This matters that, that doesn't nullify the relationship with the first wife just because you got a younger model. Um, because that, I think, is also rather culturally relevant um, for people who swap out wives right. for younger models. Yes. Not having any particular reason other than I'm bored. Right. That's a good point, and that's a, that's a behavior that's not that's not even when even when you're in a context of where women are treated completely as property mm-hmm. by the law, right? That's not um, acceptable, right? Um, I think the law is um, is pretty ugly in the way it treats women, um, as we've kind of discussed. Um, but I think the stories are less ugly. Um, and so I think it's interesting. One of those, well, I don't know, what, what do we do with Proverbs? I mean, is Proverbs law or a story or... Proverbs... It's its own thing. Yeah, Proverbs is its own thing. Um, and so we get the 31st chapter that talks about the virtuous woman. And um, my fundamentalist friends might remember the DC Talk song about this. The 31st chapter tells me all about her. It um, uh, starts out with the, you know, we, I took this woman to a restaurant where I guess they grow the olives... And uh-huh. she's clearly not the virtuous woman because she wears a short, too, a skirt that's too short, and those sorts of things. Okay. But he's looking for a virtuous lady. This is a pop song. It, it is a DC talk song. It's a Christian pop song. Oh, I see. Yeah, charm yeah. is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. A woman fears the Lord; she ain't playing. Trust yeah. me, I, I, I've got it on a CD. Well, I just when you said you said it like it was a band that I should know, but I, it's a Christian rock song, so I don't. Well, I don't DC know talk that. is big enough that that it's okay that you might actually know them. Okay. Like, you see talking audio adrenaline are high on the list. So, so. But she's know, powerful. This woman is, is powerful. She's she has powerful. a business. She's mm-hmm. influential. Right. One of the debates is how much, how much is this a reflective of culture or is this aspirational? Yeah. Um, even with that, you still, you do get a woman who has her own economic status and her own ability to buy and sell as she chooses and presumably no permission from, um, a husband right to do all of those things and weirdly no reference to intimacy right like zero reference it says she has kids that's as close as you get mm-hmm. and then you have the thing about being the charm and and whatever what is it charm and charm you were quoting the song oh. charm and something is fleeting whatever right beauty is fleeting charm and beauty are fleeting right. yeah so that's interesting to me that that's a story of describing a wife with no reference to sexuality. Right. Which, let's be clear, any view retroactively to 1950s would say the same thing. Yeah. Like, you exist to run the household, to be pretty, and clearly you have children in that process. No one talks about sex or how you get those children, or there's any clear expectation of that. And I mean, that might be me looking back, but culturally that's our narrative of that era. And by the way, and I, I suppose we ought to finish off some of the ugliness here, which is in the creation story, the second creation story, when Eve is sent out of the garden with Adam and they're punished, her desire for her husband is listed among the punishments. Right. That she'll desire him, but he will be her master. So the, it's, I like this idea that patriarchy is a product of the fall. Because that does seem to fall very naturally from what they said. Now, obviously, those are imported ideas. The whole idea of patriarchy is not is not in the Bible. I understand that, but it does say that it's a punishment for her. 
However, I do want to mention that there are some positive roles in the Bible. Marriages. There's some good marriages in the Bible. And one of the ones that I, you guys attacked me for a little bit, but I'm going to stick <laughs> with it, is the idea of Isaac uh, coming back. And so this would be Genesis 24, 67. So Isaac, rough life, right? Mm -hmm. Dad takes him up to the mountain. What are we doing? Where's the sacrifice? Don't worry about it. Where's the sacrifice? What's happening? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And then here I put you on the altar. I'm about to kill you with a knife. And then at the last minute, God saves you. Right. Um, that's traumatic. Mm -hmm. His mother then dies as soon as they come back down from the mountain. That's traumatic. Right. His dad does get him a wife. And then when they come together, it says he goes into the tent together. And he knew her. He took her as his wife. And he was, for the first time since his mother's death, comforted. So I think that's, I think that's worth, that's a precious story that's in the middle of the scripture, that does sort of show us a positive, a positive reaction, a positive interaction. Now that one, I guess, I feel stronger on. The other one I pointed out is that depending on how you translate, when Sarah hears the angels talking, mm -hmm. she could be saying, "Will I'm so old, will I know pleasure?" Right. And I said that could be talking about sex, and you guys poo-pooed that. I did not poo-poo that. Others at the table might have poo-pooed that. I think I it still could be that. I did not come to your rescue. Yeah. But I would agree almost every time with A.J. Levine on these things, which is like, let's be clear, we're talking about sex. Oh, that's right. A.J., that's where I heard it. Yes. A.J. Levine's backed me up on yes. it. Yes. Well, she speaks Hebrew and everything. <laughs> so, um, okay. So, I think that's... Do we leave anything out that's sort of in the sort of what's in the scripture that we're looking at? I don't think so. Um, I think this is... I guess we should talk just a minute about the androgynous beings. Yeah. Just very quickly, there's, it's very confusing. What does it mean when the two become one flesh? That's not necessarily talking about sex. There's a weird idea that humans were created initially androgynous. As an androgynous being, and it was only as a result of the fall that they were separated. Right. Because it was intended to be androgynous. Well, no, no, not the fall. In the second story, they're separated before the fall. They take the side out. So, it depends on which oh, theologian which, which one? Okay, all right, you care about. Who says like this is this is a result of sin that they are separated? And we are intended to be one. All right. And so this is actually one of the conversations that happens in more conservative circles around women's equality in general. That there was an androgynous being, and so there was a separation. It was never superiority over one. Good. So let's just put it in that there's some crazy, crazy crap mm -hmm. about what does it mean that when it says. In God's image, they were created male and female. That's just some, there's some real crazy time around that. Right. All right. So, all right. So just put that aside then. So the question then is that we talked about at the end was, is there, um, what do we get from the Bible? What can the Bible tell us about sex and marriage? So I think one of the things that we kind of run around all the time is that sex is powerful. And therefore, sex matters and we don't treat it lightly. And I think that that is something that progressive Christians have wrestled with how we talk about sex, what we teach about sex. But we can at least say sex has and sexuality has some power over us. And we should be equipping ourselves and equipping our children to mitigate all of these things that come. And we're not condemning it in the same way that this is purely lust and there's nothing good here. But clearly, this is one of the concerns of, wow, this is a force that we don't quite understand. And I think that's a theme that we can take off from when much of what Jesus taught, Jesus was a, Jesus ministry was three years long, or one year long, depending, right? Right. So, like, we don't have, 
like Jesus didn't have a chance to finish a bunch of stuff. And then the people who followed right after him said, "There's no reason to worry about the, dealing with the details of this because right, the second Jesus coming is coming back." Is coming back. Yeah. That didn't happen. And so the way the early church decided to deal with it as patriarchy, we don't have to accept that. Right. We can respond to it in a different way, but can still be respectful of the fact that sex is powerful and it, it does matter. Mm-hmm. And then I put out the pitch that, again, just I acknowledge I'm being uh, retrofitting here, but if you look at the relationships that are good in the Bible, often they're with strong women. Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe inadvertently, accidentally, the Bible shows us an example of how the importance of equality, the importance of being on equal footing so that you can be vulnerable with each other, so that you can give equally of each other, which requires an equal footing. Um, and as it happens, the examples in the Bible of good relationships, of relationships that seem like ones that we would like, happen to have strong women. So that's my pitch. I don't know if I accept your pitch, but I'm willing to at least take a swing at it. All right. Very good. All right. Anything else? I don't think so. All right, I think that does it for now. Um, And we'll uh, wrap up another episode then of Bloody Mary Bible Bunch. Until next time, cheers.